You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Good morning. Richard Watts with you here on another edition of Smart Arts. Hope you're well. And on today's show, we're going to be finding out about the festival program for Dark Mofo, which is held down in Hobart, presented by Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art. It's their winter festival. We'll be chatting with creative director Lee Carmichael. Uh, In terms of regular segments, Art Attack this week... Uh, Ace and Ty should be joining us at 9.30. I'm not sure what they're reviewing this morning, but it will be a new exhibition somewhere around Melbourne or in the immediate vicinity thereof. We're going to chat about Meme Girls, which is the latest production at the Malthouse Theatre with its director and co-creator Stephen Nicolazzo and co-creator and performer Ash Flanders. I had the pleasure of seeing the show last week and it's an absolute delight. Uh, Another festival that's about to happen is the True North Arts Festival, which is running from tomorrow, the 17th, through to Sunday the 19th of April. More info at truenorthfestival.com.au. But we're going to be finding out about part of its performance program, Frisk, which is presented by students from the VCA. Uh, the Comedy Festival is wrapping up this weekend, so uh, today we're going to look at Cabaret with a couple of different shows. Perverts, presented by East End Cabaret, and we're also going to find out all about Lady Sings It Better. Plus, on the exhibition front, Medieval Moderns, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood at the NGV, and there's a brand new theatre opening up in Bendigo. We're going to find out all about that. Uh, it's a converted jail which should make for an atmospheric evening of entertainment. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today on Smart Arts. Now, if you're looking for something to do this winter as it gets darker and colder, you could head north where it's warmer, or you could head further south to where it's even darker and colder. Specifically, you could head to Hobart, where the third annual Dark Mofo is being presented. Joining us on the line to tell us a bit more about the festival, it's creative director Lee Carmichael. Lee, good morning. Morning, Richard. Now, as I said, this is the third annual Dark Mofo, which is presented by Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art. Uh, Now that it's reached its third year, does that mean that the festival has truly established and concreted its own identity? Feels like it has. It feels like it has. And, and, um, you know, we we started from the beginning exploring darker themes and uh, the audience seemed to have gone along with us and so I guess it feels this year that we're able to push that concept even further. How are you pushing it further this year? Uh, Well I guess there's the the program's darker, uh, more challenging in some areas. Um, Yeah. Give us an example of uh, how you are challenging your audiences at Dark Mofo this year, particularly compared to previous years when you've already had uh, and now established the uh, the nude midwinter swim, for example, which some people would find challenging just because of the cold, let alone the nudity. But how does the festival challenge its audiences artistically as opposed to just with the uh, the human body revealed in all its kind of flabby glory? 
Uh, we've got a few examples. I mean, I guess we're pushing further into the night. So, you know, it's challenging just to, to get to some of these events. We've got a number of things at midnight, for example. But um, one probably perfect example is a project that we've commissioned um, called Base Bath, which is a collaboration between Byron Jay Scullin and... Uh, uh, Supple Fox, and we're going to fill an old industrial shed full of massive amounts of base to the point that you can only enter if you've got headphones on and signed a disclaimer. Um, you know, so pushing pushing people to the extremes, which I think is appropriate at you know the, the time of the year, which is the longest night, which is an extreme point, and I think that's the space where interesting things happen, and that's where we want to be. In terms of places where interesting things happen, one of the things that you're doing for Dark Mofo this year is taking people out of Hobart and its surrounds into the heart of the Tasmanian wilderness at the in the middle of winter. So this is going to be mm. an intriguing uh, event, a two-night immersive art experience. Tell us a little more. Figure, you know, even though we do have the longest and coldest nights, although um, that might be challenged by Canberra on the coldest front at times, um, we feel that sometimes our weather lets us down in that it's not actually cold enough and it's not wintry enough, like say in the European winters. So what we're doing is we're pushing out three hours out of Hobart into uh, Cradle Mountain Lake St Clair National Park, which is a real winter experience and feeling. And yeah, we're going to do our kind of strange and wonderful things out there with um we'll open an exhibition by ash keating uh and we'll have a, a kind of really dark and bizarre banquet um headed up by uk food designers bompus and par so it'll be pretty amazing and kind of one off for very small numbers I was lucky enough to get a ticket. Speaking of uh, small events, uh, intimate events for small numbers, one of the mm. theatre works that's being presented this year, Funeral, I had the uh, the yes. chance to experience at the Melbourne Fringe last year. Uh, it's since had a very successful season at the Adelaide Fringe as well. It's the kind of show that you can't really talk about in detail other than to say that it should be experienced. Absolutely. I mean, I probably won't get the chance to experience it myself, but I'm very excited to have it as part of the festival. And yes, from all reports, people should be lining up to get into that one. It's a, I found it quite life-affirming in its, in its own strange way. So, And speaking of strange, also on the theatre front, uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando is one of those novels that has... Um, challenged people, delighted people, been turned into a successful film many years ago. Uh, and now also you've got The Rabble, the uh, the Melbourne-based theatre company, w- with an exquisite sense of design, bringing this production down to Hobart as well. Yeah, this is a collaboration with uh, Theatre Royal, who are bringing down The Rabble, and we're really excited to have it in, in the program. I guess, you know, it looks at gender issues and... I guess in some small way that probably ties to the fact that we're lucky enough to have Anthony and the Johnsons down um, as an exclusive show. So, yeah... Yeah. yeah, and that exclusive, I know, I, when the, uh, the announcement was made that uh, Dark Mofo was featuring Anthony and the Johnsons, I saw a lot of people on Facebook saying, oh, we're not going to book tickets yet, we're going to wait for the sideshows to be announced, and I had to very sadly and quickly disappoint them, them, them that there yeah. will be no sideshows. As you say, this is a Hobart exclusive. It really isn't. There absolutely aren't any. And, you know, the sad thing for us is that we don't really have a lot of tickets either. I think it's uh, we've got about 1,800 that are going to go on sale. And I believe Anthony yeah, the Johnson sold around 5,000 last time they were in Melbourne. So they're going to be hotly contested. We wish we could 
find more, but we can't. But for those that are lucky enough to get in, it's going to be an intimate and highly emotional experience, I would imagine. I would say so. Having seen Anthony the Johnsons perform live a couple of times now, it's certainly mm. uh, a recommended event. And people can pre-book for that Anthony and the Johnsons uh, performance. Two, two shows with the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra at Dark yeah. Mofo by going to darkmofo.net.au forward slash pre hyphen sale hyphen registration. Uh, yeah. Definitely a, a, a chance to uh, to miss what to to book for what I think will be an unmissable show. Now, Lee, something I wanted to ask you about in terms of Dark Mofo. Last year, the festival announced that it would be expanding up to Launceston in the north of Tasmania. Those plans were then shelved. Uh, can you tell us what went on there and whether there are plans this year or indeed in the future years to further grow Dark Mofo beyond its Hobart base? I think, look, it was, a, it was an experiment. Uh, we put a lot of work into going up into Launceston and things just didn't work out. It was becoming unviable and putting too much pressure on the Hobart event, which was kind of a, not a smart move to do in only our second year. I think based on that experience, we'll, we will be focusing on this being a Hobart-based festival. Um, Hobart has the longest night. Uh, that's what we're going to iron. I think we'll stay there. We may stretch out and do more and more of these kind of um, two-night or small experimental gigs outside of Hobart, but that's probably about it. This year's Dark Mofo is running from the 12th to the 22nd of June with a, a broad program. You've got everything from uh, uh, film and music. You've got uh, uh, fire and, and the night. Uh, you've got uh, kind of nudity at, uh, at midwinter and many, many more things, including food, theatre, uh, and some really, really strong gigs lined up. And uh, the, uh, the Winter Feast as well, five nights of food, fire, music and performance at uh, Hobart. Dockside Prince's Wharf Shed 1. So lots to see at the festival this year, running from the 12th to the 22nd of June. More information at darkmofo.net.au. We've been chatting to Creative Director Lee Carmichael. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. You're tuned to Smart Arts on Triple Arts. Time for us to have an art attack. Art attack 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 attack. Attack is our fortnightly visual art review segment and Tice Nath and Ace Wagstaff join us together in the studio this morning. Hello. Yeah, hello. You've got the A team, both of us. Yeah, yeah. as opposed to one or the other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's why there's two. It's good to have you both here. (laughs) It's it's good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, you've been off seeing work by Patricia Piccinini, who's a very well-known Australian artist now. People may be familiar with everything from her kind of strange animal-human hybrid sculptures uh, to the sky whale balloon. To the kind of car car part sculptures. But this is very different, this show. It is. It's still about I was thinking about that. It's it's very different, but it is a good kind of cross-section of what she does as well at the same time. Yeah, kind of. It's like... Mm. There's a little bit of little bit of everything in there, but yeah. but it is. I think the different element of it is that it is major, the majority of it is drawing. Yeah. And 
even though I'm led to believe that Patricia does have a lot of drawing involved in her pre, you know, production of work or his her studies of the work, we don't often get to see drawings. I, I don't think I've ever seen any of yeah, drawings preparatory before. sketches and plans are often you know yeah. cast asunder for the main event. Um, yeah, but this show is is almost entirely drawings. Yeah, and. Th- do you, did you want to begin? <laughs> Sounds like we're both like, who's going who's gonna to start? I'll, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll tell the listeners, the good listeners, yeah. what it's called, at least. It's called what about the bad listeners? Bad listeners, just turn your radio off. Uh, it's called And Colour Is Their Flesh. So it's at Talano Galleries, which is in... Mm, address, please. The address of Talano Galleries it's is level, level four, four, 104 <laughs> Exhibition Street, Melbourne. It's one of those places I know how to get to on foot, but I have no idea what the address is. More info at talanogalleries.com. And how many works do you think are in this show? I didn't actually count, but I could make a guess at there's, about 20 there's about or 30. so. 30? Yeah. No, it's quite big. It's, it's a big show. It's the whole gallery. Yeah. And some of them are just graphite, graphite on paper, so graphite quite, on paper. quite pure. And then some of them are like a sort of screen print process with then uh, drawing over mm. the top in a black fine liner. And then some of them again have these kind of paint spill or ink spills across them. Yeah, and drawing these, on top of that. And that's something that you, I guess, you know, going back to that idea of, of this broad cross section, is you don't don't expect that kind of gestural, really. Um, in terms of practice making mm. or, or image making, mm. that fluid nature to come out in a work. Because everything, uh, when you see it in a gallery space, especially her sculptures, are so controlled and so well produced and have a high level of skill and material right. uh, attributed to them. So but to they are these also quite surreal. Like I, in the piece of writing that, that oh, Patricia's done. Oh, entirely surreal, yeah. Yeah, but, but as she sort of mentions, surrealism is really important to her work, but so is realism. Mm. And I think that's where her work, particularly her sculpture, I find them really satisfying. Is yeah, that they it's are finding those ambiguous equal. zones That's in between, right. you know, this this thing being unreal and it also being yeah. real at the same Recognizable time. Recognisable and abstract, so animal yeah. and, and mineral at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And there's something in this show that is recurring um, throughout the whole thing, the, the idea of hair. And I know that, as she says, she's used hair forever in her practice, mm. which is kind of nice. Like, right from the start, she's always been sort of interested in hair. And she says, there is wild, unruly hair. There is a lab styled hair. There is hair that forms into something else. Um, and I think that idea of hair is sort of like living but not alive and sensual but not actually, you know, part of the body and yes. appendage to the body. And, and especially when you're looking at the, the ways in which it's represented and you, you cast your mind to the way that, that hair exists in the world, you know, it can be tamed, it can be straightened, it can mm. be curly or fizzy. And, um, and, and the way she's kind of crafted that in the images, you know, it does take on these different dimensions as, as a smooth, you know, chunk of matter. Mm. And then again, as these, you Wispy know, stretching tent, you know, tentacles or mm. tendrils, like reaching out. Um, yeah, so in that way, like, hair is a really good example of her practice in this, this yeah. morphic nature of the flesh and this morphic kind of, uh, well, sort of strange, unidentifiable shapes and forms that can... It's kind of an accessory to the flesh, isn't it? It's mm, sort of definitely. like... And I, there was one drawing that I loved that it looked like... It's like the fluid flesh. It's this, yeah. you know, secondary counterpart. Yeah, almost like a defining shadow or something. But there was this one drawing that I liked where she'd obviously sort of identified these parts of the ink bleed as that mm. looked a bit like penises or heads. You 
yeah. that were like heady things. Yeah. And then she'd drawn. Well, know, that's really balding. interesting. At first, I thought there were limbs, kind of like this Goya-esque, oh, really? like you know. I just saw penises, but maybe that's. <laughs> um, they they had like little balding hairlines, or yeah. she'd drawn little hairlines around them, which you sort of look at it and go, "Oh, is it a head?" Is it a penis or yeah. is it a flat, you know? Is it a disemboweled torso? Yeah. Yeah, something with some hair growing off it. You know, it, it, there's a lot of that kind of, it's grotesque, but it's also kind of cute in mm. a weird way. And did you see, did you see the work in the back room, the uh, the kind of flesh flowers yeah. protruding from the mound? Yeah. Yeah. That in itself, just on that, that issue of being cute and also grotesque, they were amazing. Like, yeah, they're amazing. Uh, if I had a spare 60 grand lying around, I'd totes buy that one. <laughs> but um. <laughs> Yeah, there's sort of these flesh flowers, like almost like clitoral flowers growing out of a yeah. little hill. Yeah, these these little uh, sea stars of human-coloured yeah. flesh with pubic-like hairs stringing yeah. off them in, in different areas. I guess, I mean, not not that I would... I love Patricia's practice and I think she's one of our most established artists in, in this country, but I, I mean, my only criticism of the show would be that it's maybe too much. This is too... Oh, for that show? Yeah, for this show. Like, yeah. I felt like I had a little bit of drawing fatigue by the I definitely got the feeling that, um, you know, that this is kind of a, like, like a studio show in a way. Yeah, a little bit. Um, except, obviously, prepped and framed for a commercial gallery mm. space. So here's, here's some preparatory sketches that I've perhaps done on, in a notebook, but, you know, jazz them up a little bit, pop them on some nice heavy grey paper. Made them noise. Yeah, made them noise. Yeah. Uh, pop them in frames. Yeah. But so, so Ty, your impression is that, f- for you, the, the, the volume yeah. of work was a little overwhelming. Yeah, and I thought that perhaps, like, the sculptural works that were on the wall there are a few sort of works scattered throughout the space that for me I would have liked to have seen just a drawing show mm. just not not and felt uh, like okay. she has to yep. pad it with something else or it felt a bit like too too much a few afterthoughts but you yeah. know I mean that's always a good problem really it's yeah like, oh look at you, you I, did I, too much yeah, work no, again. I'm always like more is more <laughs> let's go <laughs> yeah. so this is work by Australian artist Patricia Piccinini currently showing mm. at Tolano Galleries in the CBD uh, the website is tolanogalleries.com for more information. How long is the exhibition on till? It goes till the, till the 9th of May. Of May. Yeah. yeah. So for, for a few more weeks. And it's anyone can go just so that, I mean, sometimes people, when you've got to go up in a lift and you've got to kind of go past the you've office You've got to go find stuff, your own way and it's you, a little yeah. bit of a you you know, don't dungeon gauntlet. You don't have to book. You don't have to say, hello, um, is it okay if I come in? You just yeah. go in, have a look. Yeah. 104 Exhibition Street, yep. level four. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I went to see that Ace hasn't got to yet, but I'm sure he will on the weekend. Oh, uh, I'm... Yeah, my is, curiosity is, is, is peaked. peaked. Yeah. yeah so uh, Miss Universal is the name of the work ah. on at Gertrude Contemporary. This is a new work by Claire Lambie and uh, dancer and choreographer Atlanta Eek. Yeah. And structurally, Lamb. Lambie, Lamb is, is amazing. I'm huge yeah. fan. Yeah, me too. I'm a f- huge ha- fan of both of these artists mm. separately. So when they're together, I'm just like, wow, these it guys are It makes sense as well. It does sort of make sense. Yeah. It's weird. If people don't know, yeah, Atlanta is a is a dancer traditionally, and Claire Lamb is kind of a well, she's a sculptor, but she also works with photographers and um, creates installations of objects, and um, she she makes big things. So the thing that she's made in the front window of Gertrude is like a custom welded frame with handles on the side and casters on the bottom and then big red clips, like it's huge, and then clipped to this frame are these three very large 
photographic prints, mm. sort of huge sheets like the size of a I, double I think bed we're sheet. we're talking five metres by 1.8 oh. metres. Something Oof. like that, Richard. <laughs> yeah, they're big. <laughs> they're really big. And uh, on first impression as you're walking along Gertrude Street, so a lot of people might have seen this or clocked it or whatever, it looks... I just sort of looked and my brain said S&M. Like that was the first... They, it says sex in yeah. some kind of way. It's a line of women with their back towards you um, wearing kind of G-strings with a strappy back thing and knee-high socks. But on closer impression, they are wearing swimming caps. So you go, hmm, swimming sex? And then they are, we- <laughs> they are wearing no shoes, which is unusual because usually a sexualised image would have stilettos or something. They're not wearing shoes, but then you sort of go, what is that on their feet? And you go closer. They're all standing on blocks of clay so as to make their bottom line perfectly in line so they're I, different. I love yeah. the idea that you know it's there's these points of disinformation this visual disinformation that's being fed to mm. the viewer as well to kind of make you engage like or investigate mm. the image a little bit stronger and then as you get closer you realize well they're all quite they're not super photoshopped so you mm. see a little bit of cellulite or there's some tan marks so they're real which yeah. is a nice thing as a woman to see and they're also there's that humor where there's one really short lady but you don't notice at first because she's actually just standing a huge a big, mound of yeah. clay, yeah. Yeah, and it does... Um, I spoke to Helen Hughes yesterday and she was saying that Atlanta was trying to evoke a kind of Busby Berkeley-esque vibe, mm. whereas there's that uh, perception of perfection, but on closer inspection it's like there's a whole lot of bodies. There's diversity and, and yeah, individuality. Which, yeah. which is like life. And so there's this... Um, there's this idea of the body as material or the body as a lump of clay. For me, anyway, that's what came through. And as I understand that this frame is actually manipulated by a group of bodies <laughs> or dancers it that is, come in and, and move the it frame. It moves around the space because I've seen yeah. it at different positions at different times So it's also a prop, which yeah. is interesting. And then In terms of the manipulation of the body, what I find mm. interesting as well is that you mentioned that uh, the bodies in this photograph, uh, they're standing on clay and they're, they're wearing um, swimming caps. Mm. So there's earth and water at mm. uh, the at top and bottom of the frame. And if you've seen any of Atlanta's work before, she often has these sort of very strong elements or materials in her work. So she often plunges her body into water or she manipulates clay mm. on stage. Or, or she urinates you know, on stage yeah. or she uh, kind of wears a gorilla suit to, yeah. to, to mask the body. So it's quite visceral. And, it, and the thing I do love about Atlanta's work is it's as serious and visceral and sort of bodily it is, it's funny. And it's a type of humour that's very difficult to achieve it's kind of like just a little bit dark yeah. and so <laughs> if you're interested in that stuff which most people are you should get along to Gertrude on Saturday because I believe that there is a performance happening that's free that you can attend Saturday yes this Saturday the 18th of April between midday and 3 p.m. yeah and then at 3 p.m. there is a talk in the main space by there's a second show by um, Melbourne artist Alex Vivian which is really really exciting I think as an idea it's it's called Thinking About Branding, Advertising, Target Audience, etc. It's a funny title, but it's, you know, if you s- distill it down, it's all about ideas of taste, but the yeah. analogy between actual food taste and taste as in, like, what's what's nice or what's not or what's fashionable or what's as not. A, as a hierarchy value system. Yeah, yeah. and then but then applied to sort of a series of objects and images, which yeah. is really interesting, I think, for an artist to go to that point. But, but drawing analogies like something that goes off, you know, like a lump of cheese or something goes off, 
or some margarine or mayonnaise goes off, but then so does sort of bell-bottom pants go off. (laughs) And so he's made these really cute, hilarious text pieces that are sort of, I guess they're reliefs really Mm. technically. They're words that are shaped into, like there's one that has bell-bottom pants that are, what does it actually say? It says expired bell-bottoms and that the text make the shape of bell-bottoms, but it's all been sort of appliqued in this um, checkered shirt, like a flannelette shirt. Yeah. And then there's another one. signature materials. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another one that says um, scrumptious leather shirt. And so there's sort of these... yeah, signs that are packed with do- lots of different analogies about and food. There's a lot of taste. like sexuality in food and in clothing or yeah. fashion as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a really interesting show, I think, for Alex. I think it's probably the point where a lot of stuff's coming together and yeah. making sense. And he's, you know, doing doing great things. So go and check that out. But he will, if you're interested in his work, he will be there speaking at 3 p.m. on, on Saturday. Saturday. So From three really good shows if you're into anything David Cronenberg or, you know, the amorphous <laughs> or the body, really. Flesh. And the yeah. body, yeah, yeah. yeah Patricia so, Piccinini, uh, Alex Vivian, and Claire Lamb, and Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. So Patricia is on at Talano Galleries, talanogalleries.com. Uh, Claire and Atlanta's work, and also Alex, Alex Vivian's Vivian. work on at Gertrude Contemporary, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. More info at gertrude.org.au. Lovely, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Pleasure. We'll see you in a fortnight's time. See Boy. ya. couple of theatre makers join us in the studio now. Uh, the director and co-creator of Mean Girls at the Malthouse, Stephen Nicolazzo, and co-creator and one of the performers, the lead performer, Ash Flanders. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello, Melbourne. <laughs> so, uh, where th- I'm going to start with you, I think, Ash, because okay. I, I know you have a bit of a... You enjoy YouTube confessional <laughs> videos, and indeed um, they've featured in an earlier show of yours from several years ago. Yes. Uh, um, Is that the seed from which Meme Girls has grown? Yeah, Meme Girls came out of my first show, Negative Energy Incorporated, which was me railing against the world and not a lot has changed. And um, there was a piece in it, even though I've told all these personal stories, the piece that everyone remembered was when I performed a monologue that was done on Judge Judy where a woman described her horse being killed by lightning and then finding out that they hadn't been buried and were in fact sold to the meat man, her babies, as she referred to them which was a haunting piece of verbatim theatre. And then that was everyone's favourite piece from the show. So I thought um, when Maltaz asked if I had any ideas, I said, well, what about a show entirely made up of monologues that I found on YouTube? Um, And it would kind of hopefully be an examination of the way people make their identities online and also kind of let people know, like, what is going on in the real world. I think the authentic voice of it is something that's you can't, you can't write that. <laughs> uh, Stephen, how did you get involved with the process? Um, because I started working with Ash um, on Negative Energy Incorporated, um, we kind of started developing a good working relationship and we'd done Psycho Beach Play together and we started talking about this project. And I got really excited because I was wondering what, how you would theatricalise these kind of mundane or strange monologues from YouTube and how you could actually give them the rigour and and kind of um, visual 
life that you kind of want on stage. And that was what excited me about it. Yeah. And one of the ways that visual life has been achieved is through uh, having Ash in uh, kind of white tucks and tails, for example. We have um, uh, a a drag performer, uh, Art Simone, on stage as well. Uh, And a gorgeous uh, set and lighting Mm. design as well. So uh, with a couple of regular collaborators. Yes, which is really exciting. In terms of selecting the content, Ash, tell us about that process because there's a lot on YouTube to sort through to find the right (laughs) confessional videos. Uh, Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I I am obsessed with with YouTube and, and watch it a lot of the time and as as we got further into this process, it equally became about the way these people's uh, videos construct my own identity or how they resonate with me. And so it really became about a matter of uh, personal, I guess, taste or effect. Whatever had actually moved me and got me genuinely interested, uh, that was up for grabs then because that spoke to me and I was hoping, as you always do as a writer-performer, that that speaks to the audience. And so um, it was just videos that I, I became more and more obsessed with and these are the videos we pass around to each other for whatever reason sometimes for a laugh sometimes to illuminate something and i was hoping i could do that with these uh in real life in front of a live audience what are the legal issues involved with replicating people's performances from that they've put online taking those and putting those in the real world do you have to pay a licensing fee that sounds like a multi-ask question Um, (laughs) let's call them up no it's been all through legal and people have been contacted and things have been said and there's the idea of uh what's that uh public public domain and that uh, you know none of these are written and it's like overhearing a conversation and and writing that conversation down and performing it it's and you know and there was there was a lot of discussion about like what is a like do they have a creative license for the content that they're you know putting out there and you know and it's kind of interesting because it's linked to the show now in terms of you know what is high art what is art and like in terms of whether they yeah, have the same kind of legal rights. Yeah. I mean, because it, it is in some ways uh, intellectual property. Yeah. Uh, but then, again, they're putting that out into the world. They're putting their emotions and thoughts and feelings out into the world, which then, Ash, you're embodying in yeah. the show. And one of the things that I found fascinating watching it was the way that you've taken uh, the the emotional tone of the show from farce and comedy and then dipping into tragedy um, and then back again. It's a very fluid progression uh, and an almost seamless progression from... Uh, from laughter to real pathos. Well, yeah, that's how, pretty much how I experience every waking moment of my life. One moment I'm very much laughing and the next moment I'm, I'm wondering where the hell this grain of dirt in the universe is going. So it's it's... I think that's the power of theatre is to take you places and this show has the ability within one hour to take you to a very silly, fun, joyful, clowning place and then to a very sad, truthful look at uh, the people who have slipped through the cracks of society or the people who are not having it so easy and the the prejudices or the biases that exist in the real world and the fact that these people are all trying to connect with an audience they'll never see and why do we do that and why are we all so desperate to be seen? And so big, big things come out of seemingly silly things. Stephen, in terms of kind of helping focus that emotional tone of the yes. show, tell us about your experience well, of, of shaping that well, as that a was director. Re- that was really important for me and it was a big part of how I was structuring the work as well in terms of our collaboration because I wanted to, you know, get past the, per- the parody um, 
you know, for myself as an artist as well, because I've been given a lot of crap for it in the past. Um, so it was really interesting to start exploring this idea of, you know, presenting them in this heightened way and then really mining the emotional journey for... And to also sort of um, showcase Ash's real talent for performing truthful performance as well, like, and characterization, and, and actually giving you a sense that there is a lot of heart behind this exercise. Like, it's not just us poking fun at these people. Yeah, it, it's not just a, a, a bitchy put-down, no. for example. It's, there's, there no. is, as you say, there is real heart to it, and particularly the, the sequence uh, involving an elderly woman who's becoming homeless. Yeah. That's, I mean, to, yes. to, put, to embody that tragedy on stage, to hear the kind of story in a theatre that we do not normally hear is a, is a rare and, and startling opportunity. Yeah, I think that's the power of YouTube and the power of performance is that there's no longer a gatekeeper to say this person doesn't get a right to say, to say this story. There's a democratisation which has its good points and its bad points. And going back to what Stephen said in it and about going further than just parody or characterization, I always found it very hard when people said to me, you know, but do you like these people or do you not like these people? Do you, are you making fun of them or do you love them? And I'm like, it's never that easy. That is such a reductive, like, binary idea. It's as binary as male and female and this show blurs those lines too. Uh, people are complicated creatures and I have complicated relationships with these people who I've never met and who I will never meet. And certainly in my family, I love them all, but I make fun of them all the time. But it would, I could never say I didn't love them. Mm. It strikes me as a, in some ways, a risky show for uh, a theatre company like the Malthouse to put on because they're, uh, it's, it's taking something from YouTube and putting it on stage. How is this going to work? Mm. But given that theatre companies are also constantly looking around to how do you attract an, a younger audience, how do you attract a new audience, a show like this seems a perfect fit in that regard. Yeah, I think so. And it's been really interesting watching the audiences, actually. They are really quite young and, the, you know, on our preview night, there was this group of young teenage girls who just who understood every reference and sort of burst into hysterical laughter and cheers. And I found that really fascinating because I didn't know half of these people before I should introduce them to me. But I find it really interesting that, yeah, it's opening up a new world of, of and potential audience for all of us which is kind of exciting and one of the ways that the Malthouse is further exploring that audience is by inviting uh, because this is a show about social media mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and the online world so to celebrate YouTube's 10th birthday the Malthouse are offering uh, anybody in Melbourne with uh, more than 5,000 followers on on either Twitter or Instagram to get two free tickets to a special performance of the show on Wednesday the 22nd of April which is what the day before YouTube's 10th anniversary. Oh, good Lord. Yes, it's, it's a big anniversary. I didn't, I didn't even know that. That's See, I'm just happening. out of the loop. I'm too busy watching videos to know what's going on in the real world. <laughs> it startles me that YouTube is only 10 years old because in, in oh one way God. it feels like it's been with us forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't believe that YouTube's been around only 10 years. I feel like uh, I remember the excitement of being able to watch a music video whenever you wanted. That was like the first reason I loved YouTube and then let alone the... Then phones became cameras and the whole world went inside the computer. And, yeah, now it's a complete thing I can't... I certainly can't live without. I struggle with it. <laughs> it's terrifying. The show we're talking about is Meme Girls on at the Malthouse Theatre. Tell us about the role of music in Meme Girls. You've just referenced music videos. How has mm. music and uh, the culture of music video and the imagery of music videos shaped the show? 
Well, um, our sound artist is The Sweats, which is a Melbourne-based sound and uh, DJ uh, production house. I was kind of like, like a CNC music factory of Melbourne. And that is, in fact, very much the sound of this show. It is kind of a 90s gay house club vibe. I wanted the show, and Stephen and I both wanted the show to feel uh, fresh and, and young and exciting and clubby and not like uh, standard theatrical music. We wanted it to feel a bit more dirty and exciting and real. And also because we're using a cabaret format as well, it was about trying to contemporise that format and give it a kind of new edge. And I think taking it into the bathhouse was a really good idea. Because <laughs> cabaret's never been there. Never been there, except with <laughs> Ben Midler. Um, but yeah, so... but. I think also with my aesthetic as well, it is all quite influenced by music videos and um, and kind of pop artists and trying to make that a kind of uh, theatrical uh, event. Well, I, I certainly think with this show you have succeeded. So Mean Girls is on at the Malthouse Theatre uh, in the Beckett Theatre, uh, created by Ash Flanders, Stephen Nicolazzo, and Marion Potts, the uh, the outgoing artistic director of the Malthouse, who has now moved on to uh, to greener pastures, fresher pastures, somewhat different pastures with the Australia Council. But uh, we definitely have to acknowledge her role in the development yes. of the show as well. So uh, uh, if you're intrigued to see Mean Girls, it's on until the 2nd of May at the Malthouse, and you can book through Malthouse theatre.com.au and as I mentioned if you do have 5,000 followers on Twitter or Instagram and would like two free tickets to the show uh, then you can email box office at theatre.com.au with your name and social media handle for the Twitterati takeover uh, on Wednesday the 22nd of April at 8pm so regular punters may be horrified to see people tweeting madly all around them and taking photos no flash photography uh, and Instagramming images from the show but it's uh, it's very Instagrammable. Exactly. Get with it, people. If it doesn't happen online, it never happened. <laughs> uh, do go along and see Mean Girls. I found it absolutely delightful. And uh, Stephen and Ash, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Now, if you were listening to the show a couple of weeks ago, you may have heard us chatting about the True North Arts Festival presented by the uh, city of Darabin um, and celebrating the art of Melbourne's northern suburbs uh, from uh, Bandura and uh, uh, basically Northcote North. Just think Northcote North and and go further. Um, uh, One of the venues in uh, Darabin is not necessarily so utilised. Uh, certainly I hadn't been there for, for quite some time until friends started programming it. Uh, the Darabin Arts and Entertainment Centre at the corner of Bell Street and St George's Road, Preston, is hosting uh, part of the performance program for True North, uh, a series of works under the banner Frisk, created by students at the VCA, staged at Melbourne Fringe last year in its own f- kind of festival within a festival. Then it went north to Benalla Performing Arts Centre, and now uh, some of the Frisk shows have returned to Melbourne for True North. Joining us to tell us more is Frisk producer and VCA graduate Anna Kennedy. Anna, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. So what is it about these shows that unites them beyond the fact that they're made by VCA students? Uh, Well, I think, well, we all made our works um, 
They're completely original. So uh, these shows are created by the graduating class of 2014. Um, we, um, I was part of that process of making the shows and we've uh, created some really challenging and exciting new work that hasn't been seen before. They aren't adaptations, they're completely new original theatre works. When you say challenging, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, in terms of the content, so there's a lot of stuff about... Um, well, I, I suppose I should tell you a bit of the sh about the shows to um, explain what I mean. So one of the shows, um, Notes from Zombieland, kind of explores um, Generation Y narcissism and it's a crazy kind of mashup of um, Samuel Beckett, Dostoevsky, the Teletubbies and the Mighty Boosh. So <laughs> it's like this kaleidoscopic world where all these wild things happen um, and an alien comes to Earth to uh, study the human condition. So it's... Um, I guess not your traditional sort of piece of theatre. Um, and there's another show I still call Australia Homo, which is um, poses the question, uh, what would it be like to live in Australia if it was the worst place in the world to be gay? So uh, think, I don't know, contemporary Russia and make it worse. Yeah, but it's a comedy. So it's, um, and it's told through uh, two couples who um, live next door to each other and they're, relationships and how they um, kind of change over the course of the play. And another one is called uh, Godlike Status, and that's about a hardcore online gamer who has, is undefeated. So um, he w invites the audience as his fans to watch him defeat his arch nemesis Magnum Johnson. So that's an immersive theatre piece. And the final piece from the Under the Frisk banner is uh, The Adventures of Ophelia Soul. And that is a one-woman show which is uh, the most fabulously flamboyant wedding celebrant um, it celebrates equal love and um, invites the audience to be part of a wedding as members of the um, bridal party. So, so it's an interactive piece. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those works seem to have a, uh, in terms of what unites them, mm. they're exploring very, very fresh contemporary ideas, for yeah. example, um, and sometimes do, choosing to do so through a more traditional theatrical uh, lens, other times really immersing the audience in the in the theatrical world that's being created. Absolutely. And the other thing that fascinates me about it is, as we've said, these are now kind of road-tested, tightened shows that have done... Mm. This, these, this is the third season for the works. Yeah, that's right. So um, we had our first season, as you said, um, during Melbourne Fringe last year, and then we went on a um, regional tour to Benalla and Natamuk. Um, and, yeah, we've been very lucky to have uh, Darabin Arts contact us and want to remount some of the shows, which is great. So, How did they go down in, uh, in uh, Benalla and Natamuk? Really, really well. I think we, some of us were a bit hesitant because um, there, were, there were eight shows in the original um, Fringe season last year and we took all of them on tour and I think because, you know, there's a lot of content about um, homosexuality or there were plays that were quite political um, or kind of wild and weird. Uh, we weren't sure how regional audiences were going to respond to things like that. Uh, but I think um, we 
all tried really hard to keep an open mind because none of us would want to assume that we know how people are going to respond to anything. Well, um, and in Natamuk particularly, given that it hosts the, uh, the Natty Fringe, yeah, you'd exactly. kind of expect that audiences there might be used to slightly more provocative or left-of-centre work. Yeah, yeah, and all the feedback we got was overwhelmingly positive. It was just really nice to... Because we stayed in those communities for just under a week and we... Um, we got to know the people there and we'd hang out at the pub with the locals and it was just a really nice um, experience and I guess we have to thank Regional Arts Victoria for that but um, it it gave us an opportunity to not only share our work with audiences that wouldn't otherwise get a chance to see it but for us to be part like become part of a different community for a week so and an important learning experience as artists as well not just making work but taking it on tour yeah absolutely and these shows are um we've done them in three different venues now so um we they're all incredibly tight and one of the shows I still call Australia Homo was at Adelaide Fringe this year so this is their fourth sort of run of their show and um, it's it's actually made my job as a producer a lot easier because all the shows are made. I just have to make sure that everybody shows up at the right place at the right time. <laughs> now, as I said, you're performing them, uh, uh, you're presenting them at the Darabin Arts and Entertainment Centre. That's quite a large stage and a large theatre to work in as well. Yes. So people should come. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, so there's uh, the two of the shows, I still call Australia Homo and Notes from Zombieland, uh, being performed in the auditorium. So that's the large space that you were talking about. And the other two shows are only 20 minutes long each. Uh, and one of them is performed in a, in a marquee outside. And the other one's performed in a smaller conference type room to sort of match the... I guess that those two are immersive theatre pieces. So they match the world of the piece um, a bit more uh, specifically than if they were in a different space like the auditorium, which yeah. would be difficult to do if you're trying to yeah, immerse someone. Immerse someone and, and make sure that they were actually interacting with the yeah. work rather than just sitting passively in a seat watching it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, are you allowed to have a favourite? Oh, uh, definitely not. <laughs> um, I, I really... Be, mm, these four shows are, were my four favourite ones from uh, the Fringe Festival season. I, All of them are just so exciting and fun and um, the, I feel like I'm really biased because they're all my peers from um, VCA, but I genuinely think they're amazing, like, impressive pieces of theatre. And all through the development process, when I was seeing the showings, I was so impressed and also intimidated because I was making a show myself at the same time by the, just the quality of the work and um, the they're so full of surprises that you can't predict what's going to happen in any of them. The four shows are I Still Call Australia Homo, Notes from Zombieland, Godlike Status and The Adventures of Ophelia Soul. They're presented uh, as part of the True North Arts Festival theatrical pro program at Darabin Arts and Entertainment Centre, located on the corner of Bell Street and St George's Road, Preston. Performances are on Saturdays and Sundays for I Still Call Australia Homo and Notes from Zombieland. Godlike Status is on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, as is the 
Adventures of Ophelia Soul. Various playing times for each of the four shows presented under the banner Frisk at True North Arts Festival. So rather than me rattling off all of those details and you trying to madly write them down, I suggest you go to the website truenorthfestival.com.au for all the details of the four shows created by 2014 VCA graduating students under the banner Frisk presented as part of True North Arts Festival. So truenorthfestival.com.au running from this Friday through until Sunday the 17th to the 19th of April. Anna Kennedy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. Um, And speaking of standards, I think we're going to lower them a little now, but in the best (laughs) possible way. Um, East End Cabaret, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, are presenting their show Perverts. Uh, And I'm joined in the studio by Bernadette Byrne and Victor Victoria from East End Cabaret. Welcome to you both. You look fabulous. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Given that radio is not a visual medium, let me just quickly say that there are feathers. Oh, yes. um, There is a top hat there is there is a bit of bosom on display there certainly is just one though just a, a, bit of, a bit of confusion when it comes to Vicky because it's obviously she is half man half woman you know yes. half moustache half mono boob well mono boob uh, just mono boob <laughs> yeah. yes which you know is a bit shocking at this time of morning but you are coping very well darling um, yeah. I'm a sophisticated man of the world <laughs> definitely now tell us about the show Perverts uh, why the title and what's the show about well basically darling it is musical comedy, so you know it's funny songs. If you think like Tim Minchin, Flight of the Concords, but it's a little bit sexier it's, than that. It's quite naughty. It's filthy, actually. It's okay. filthy. <laughs> yes, but yes, the people is. of Melbourne seem to really enjoy the filth, you know. Yeah. So we're having a wonderful time. But yes, it's lots of stories about our lives, you know, mainly me because I'm the more also interesting me, one though, of the two. Know, partly, I am also there for yes. most of the stories. Well, Vicky is my accompanist, you know. Sometimes she does also step life out of partner. Line. Life partner. No, 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 no. Accompanist. Okay, because there have been some rumors going around this festival. I'm not really sure how they started, but that we are actually a couple or something. You know, people think this about double X, like we are dating. Or so we are not at all. We are just housemates, okay? Soulmates. No, housemates. It's like soulmates, though. No, Vicky, she is my accompanist, okay? And we live in a bed sit in East London. And yes, Together. there is only one bed, but Vicky sleeps on the floor, okay? London is expensive. Okay. You get the idea. I do. I do. <laughs> now, the the notion of filth as entertainment, it, it's it's a universal delight, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's one of the great things about filth that audiences in the, in London, audiences in Melbourne, audiences yes. in Montreal. Exactly. Can, we all seem to love a dirty it's joke. It's universal, definitely. Me too, because it's something that we all have in common, you know. It's a very human thing, mm. what happens uh, late at night or, you know. Or anywhere, the things really. people talk about behind the water cooler, you know. Everyone has had these kind of experiences and we just kind of put it out there. Exactly. And in fact, it's age group as well, you know, like it's uh, as well as, you know, country or whatever boundary there is, it it crosses, you know, we've had people that are, you know, like giggling teenagers up to giggling pensioners, really. (laughs) No one's one's kind of walked out in disgust or shock. 
Um, we had like a, a table of nuns once <laughs> at a party. Actually, it's real. We it's actually real did thing. have a yeah. table of nuns. Nobody told us that they were nuns. But so, I mean, actually, a couple of them had some wry smiles. You know, yes. I think they knew what was going and on. And then they felt obliged to walk out as the rest yes. of them did, you know, because. Yeah. But, I, you know, it, it's understandable. It's not for everyone. And I think that's what good comedy does as well. It just divides some people, you mm. know. But uh, I think that's part of the fun of it, really. How do you know where to draw the line? Because what shocks and offends some people will make other people laugh uproariously. <laughs> You've obviously got experience, uh, uh-huh. the, the two of you, uh, in terms of pushing buttons and provoking and, and titillating and mm. teasing. But when does the titillation kind of become the, the, I don't know, the musical comedy of equivalent of a slap in the face? <laughs> and how do you know when to pull back? I think it's all, it's all about kind of, you know, the way you present it as well, you know. Like, mm. we can kind of push things a little further than a lot of other people can because, you know, it's it's done with music, you know. People find that a little bit more uh, easy to uh, understand, you know. Bernadette is, well... I mean, she's not subtle. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think there are lines, you know. I think lines are meant to be crossed, you know. That's my theory. And, and one of the things I do love is getting very intimate mm. with the audience, you know. Exactly. So I get out there. I break that fourth wall. I mean, there's no fourth wall No, in there is show. no wall. It's just, you know, you <laughs> climb out there, you sit on people's laps, you know. Occasionally you lick their forehead if mm. they are beautiful. And, you know, sometimes I can get carried away. But Victi generally pulls me back, you know. I guess that's one of the... If it goes a little bit too far. You know? So, Victi, you're, you're almost the straight man. You know, you wouldn't say it to look at me, but yes, absolutely, yes, totally. Now, what role does gin play in proceedings? Because oh, quite I a strong he- one, <laughs> a very strong one. I do keep hearing the word gin associated oh. with East End cabaret. Yes. The rumours are true. We drink a lot of gin. Yes. You know, it is it is a, an amazing spirit. Exactly. And that's often when we write our best songs is when we've had quite a few gins. You mm. know. Yeah. And, and I get a bit nerdy about it because I really like you know learning about the distilling process and you know there's lots of really great Australian gins out at the moment that I'm learning about, you know, while we're going around. You get you know. really nerdy about a lot of things, Vicky. What? You know, if People she starts interested. talking about gin or musical instruments, you know, it just, she goes on for hours. Okay, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting. You I, know. If you like gin, I highly recommend a website called theginstress.com. Oh, I've read her. Oh my yes. God, she's yes. amazing. Yes, yes. so, uh, but uh, that's just a, a, a quick aside. If you <laughs> are a fan of Australian gins, or gin in general, the oh, ginstress. But, get on board. Um, um, I also like the fact that there is a, a lovely historical connection between gin and the East End of London, which Absolutely. is what your act is named after, your yes. duo East End Cabaret is named after. Yeah. Um, gin used to be such a, it was the, the, the cheap drink of the people. Exactly. exactly. And it's still the catalyst for so many things that happen in East London. <laughs> you know. yes. uh, yeah, it's, you can see it, it's still a wash in the streets, I would say. Now, you're performing at the Melbourne Town Hall in the old Met shop. Yes. Interesting choice I did not venue. know what that was it before is. we got here. <laughs> it's beautiful, you know, the Town Hall is amazing Mm. and it's quite funny because we are there obviously with a lot of comedians (laughs) who are straight stand-ups you know oh yes Uh, and obviously when we are out among the people flyering or handing out these little half moustaches we actually have one for you as well my darling just for the people at home you know there are half moustaches that have been cut out of paper they're glued to sticks so people can have them and put them on their faces and join the half moustache army that we're creating we also call them pervert moles as you know obviously the show uh, title suggests that once you put them on you know things get a little bit crazy Um, but yes among all the stand-up comedians out the front it's quite interesting because there's a lot of you know men in jeans and t-shirts they are quite weirded out by us (laughs) In many ways. In the best possible way. In the best possible way. I hope so. I mean, we smile at them, you know, and and hope to make them comfortable, but (laughs) it doesn't always work like that. (laughs) 
Now, given that you, you seeing you perform your cabaret comedy, mm. one of the things that fascinates me about cabaret is just the intimacy of it. How do you create um, an intimate atmosphere through music if people are, are worried that they're going to be licked at any moment? <laughs> I mean, they're not worried until it happens. Yeah, and also, you know, some people are excited about being licked, you know. That's something you don't expect when you go to see a show. In fact, with a lot of our stuff, you know, people kind of... They want to get chosen, you know. By the time it comes around, you know, people are very excited about what Bernadette is potentially going to do to them. I mean, I'm it's less not excited, like, it's by not the like way. stand-up, again, uh, in a way that you get picked on and we make fun of no. you, you know, because we are much more about having a good time all together. Yeah. So we like it's to like a get people to loosen up, you know, maybe touch each other's thighs a little bit, you know, with their neighbours. And, and that's the fun of our show is that we try to create this atmosphere where people are comfortable. They make new friends, you know, yeah. with the people that all they lovers. don't know that are Sitting with all lovers, all yeah, lovers. exactly, and you know, it's it just breaks the ice. And yeah. when you are talking about things that people, you know, can relate to, they just laugh, they loosen up, and you know, touch each other a little bit. <laughs> If you would like to be touched by East End Cabaret as part oh, of their yes. show, Perverts, then uh, I recommend getting along to the Melbourne Town Hall, the old Met Shop. Um, the show is on until the 19th of April, and you can book through comedyfestival.com.au. Performances are 9.30pm tonight, tomorrow night, Saturday night, and mm-hmm. then an hour earlier on Sunday? Yes, 8.30 on Sunday. So uh, you have four nights left to see East End Cabaret in their new show, Perverts. They've been getting four and five star reviews, lots of five star reviews from around <laughs> the country, um, including Time Out. They've been raved about at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe um, and described as uh, a glorious mix of humour, sauciness, musical prowess, and the glitter balls to push an audience far beyond their wildest wet dreams. Mm. Sounds good to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bernadette Byrne and Victor Victoria, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Pleasure. Just before those announcements, we heard a track called Chatter by David Bridie from his album from 2013, Wake. And if you're a fan of David Bridie, you may in fact already know that he is playing uh, at the opening of a brand new theatre, the Alumbra Theatre in Bendigo, a work that he's created uh, as a a collaborative work with uh, a group of Indigenous performers to celebrate the opening of the new theatre, Alumbra, whose name... Uh, means gather together or meeting place in the language of the Jaja Wurrung people on whose land it is built. Joining us to tell us a little bit more about the Olumbra Theatre is its uh, business development manager, David Stretch. David, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, am I correct in thinking that this theatre is not just built on, but in fact built within a repurposed uh, 19th century jail? That's that's correct. The um, the old Bendigo, Bendigo jail was built in the 1860s and uh, and operated as a as a prison up until 2004, would you believe? Um, and so when it when it began, it was a Pentonville uh, prison, a very progressive model with um, with uh, separate cells and ventilation and heating and all sorts of uh, mod cons, but uh, a, a rehabilitative space. They said. Um, obviously, when it uh, when last prisoners left in 2003, it might have been. Uh, uh, not considered as uh, as up to date as uh, we would like, but we've um, the, the education department uh, had uh, control of the the property 
there's a, the Bendigo Senior Secondary College uh, is, wraps itself around the old jail. Um, Bendigo Senior being the largest provider of uh, VCE in the, in the state. There's uh, over 1,800 year 11 and 12 students there. Um, and, um, and the school needed a, an assembly hall. The, uh, the City of Greater Bendigo needed a, a new auditorium, a new theatre. And, um, and a partnership was formed um, and, uh, and funding partners through state and federal government joined and, uh, and we now have... The, the result is a, a state-of-the-art uh, thousand-seat auditorium, um, uh, studios, education spaces and just a really extraordinary and unique um, theatre space. Look, I'm excited by the development of the space for a number of reasons. One, because it means that some of the national and international touring bodies who previously would have had to bike past Bendigo because there wasn't a large enough theatre for them to make presenting a show uh, financially viable means that Bendigo can now host artists of significant calibre, again, as I've said, nationally and internationally. Um, But it also then means that I think there's a real value for students from uh, the the school uh, around the site having access not only to workshops with those artists, but access to professional theatre spaces in which to rehearse as well. Look, that's right, and it's it's certainly the not only the the physical capacity of, of the uh, main auditorium at, uh, at just under one thousand, uh, but but also the, the technical capability of the uh, of the of the theatre with a, a full twenty six metre fly tower, um, at a, a state of the art uh, DB audio system, um, at, you know all of the the, the bells and whistles that uh, that one needs for a, for an international standard theatre are here and in place. Um, and and yes, as, as you say, it's it's really going to be not only a great opportunity for the local community, but to have um, to have the ability to tour um, national, international artists and and um, and groups through is uh, is really a great opportunity for Bendigo. Now, as I mentioned, uh, David Bridie, together with uh, a group of Indigenous performers, presenting a new musical event based on the stories of the Jaja Wurrung people at the gala opening of the new Alumbra Theatre this Friday the 17th. Tell us about some of the other events that are scheduled for the theatre in the coming weeks and months. Well, if I could just pick up on that opening to begin with, the, the, the gala opening uh, tomorrow evening. Um, the, the name of the theatre, Alumbra, as you, as you mentioned earlier, a, a local Jar Jar uh, name meaning gather together or meeting place. We felt that we run a, a, a public uh, uh, competition to, to come up with a name um, and, and this was the one that, um, that we felt was absolutely appropriate. And we're thrilled to say that this is the first significant civic uh, space in the city of Greater Bendigo that's been given an Indigenous name. And, um, and it's, really, it's really struck a chord with, with the local community. Um, the, uh, the decision to, uh, to approach and, and commission David Bridie to produce a work um, specific to our, um, our opening celebration is, um, has, has been um, uh, a really important one also. And, uh, and I'm very pleased to say I've, I sort of poked my head into uh, rehearsals yesterday and it's just sounding extraordinary. So we're very much looking forward to that. So the, the, the Friday evening, uh, a gala um, uh, opening and then um, on Saturday night, a, a community event and, and we'll really uh, stretch the legs of the of the theatre itself and its and its production capabilities, with over 500 people involved, and a big uh, a big finale on the on the stage at the end of the night with um, with uh, James Morrison um, joining us and and, uh, and leading a combined community band of uh, of many hundred players and and singers. So we're very much looking forward to that.
It sounds like it's going to be a great weekend. I had a, 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 I've known David for a while, so I had a chat to him yesterday uh, about the work and the fact that, I mean, artists such as uh, Uncle Jack Charles, Kutcher Edwards, uh, Jesse Lloyd, James Henry and others, and the, 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 the stories that are being told, the, the really um, local, important, significant stories, the, a song Soup Angels, for example, uh, about uh, people who fed the, the hungry during the influenza epidemic in 1919, um, um, there's a song about a football team I know as well. Mm-hmm. So a real diversity of local significant stories uh, reflecting the, the indigenous history of Bendigo, the city in which I was born, amongst other things. So, uh, oh, terrific. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, look, the, the, yeah, you, you're 100% correct. And, and I think that the local Jar Jar uh, community are, are, are pretty, um, pretty thrilled, I, I dare say. And, and certainly they've been in partnership with us since, since the uh, inception and certainly since the um, the the uh, decision to to, to take a, a Jar Jar uh, name with uh, with the space, um, we've um, we've been bringing them with us uh, on the journey, and uh, and it's it's very exciting. We're we're really looking forward to that. We finish up the weekend with uh, with a big open day on Sunday. We'll throw the gates open. We're activating several spaces over the um, uh, throughout the precinct and uh, and inviting the community to to come and have a look. So all in all, a, a very big weekend in what will be a a, a terrific venue for for Bendigo for, for many decades to come. Look, David Stretch, a final question for you. Uh, is the theatre finished yet? I know that when uh, people were touring it the other day, there was still a little bit of drilling and hammering going on. <laughs> yes, there was. It was quite... Uh, there was, a, there was a, a really quite a good... A, a lovely honesty to the performance that we had on, on Monday with um, with handles being uh, drilled onto doors in the auditorium and workers uh, uh, fitting lights on uh, above the stage as the, as the show uh, went on. But... Um, Look, we're we're still working. Uh, we're looking at a, a, a you know, there's been a, a, a handover of sorts. Um, we'll be we'll be ready tomorrow evening. It is looking extraordinary. Um, it will be a, a terrific um, a terrific venue, and, and yes, we're we're ready to fire. I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. This is the new Alumbra Theatre uh, in Jail Road, Bendigo. More details at www.ulumbratheatre. That's U L U M B A Opening tomorrow night in Bendigo, and then hosting, amongst other things, a brand new musical about Ned Kelly in about a month's time. David Stretch, many thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard. My next guest joins me in the studio from the National Gallery of Victoria. Curator Laurie Benson joins us. Laurie, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Morning, listeners. Now, um, things are keeping busy at the NGV, as always. We are pumping. But um, the show that's caught my eye, Medieval Moderns, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Now, this was a group of avant-garde artists rebelling against the, the, the mainstream art world at the time, but creating these lush, romantic images, hearkening back to the the high renaissance and the and the middle ages and these kind of dreams of courtly love that's that's exactly right we, the pre-raphaelites are known for these gorgeous sensual uh, very romantic imagery uh, but what's often lost in the in in all of that is that, that these are just seven young guys straight out of art school 
yeah, the oldest is 23, it's completely turning the art world upside down. And, I, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, you've got to think of that maybe the YBA artists in, uh, in, in Britain later on. But, yeah, it's an incredible movement. And, and, and that was purely just on their talent and their passion and, and, their, and, their, and their willingness to, to really change the art world. Um, one of the reasons they became so well known, I understand, was because they were controversial, as well as the, the best young artists, perhaps are. Oh, absolutely. When their work was first shown and publicly exhibited, when they, they started as, as young guys in their early twenties, uh, uh, you know, words like disgusting and foul and 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 the B word, which of course was blasphemous, and that was the that was the the, the be all and end all of criticism, if you were blasphemous. And this was coming from you know, really well known great people, Charles Dickens. Uh, the great writer, he was their, their most vociferous critic and he really did call their work disgusting, which was shocking. It's fascinating to look at this work now and, and because it is so sensual and so so lush uh, in terms of its uh, its subject matter and its composition and, and even the, the almost tactile nature of the paintings, for example, and other artworks associated with them. It's quite almost shocking for us now to think that these works were once so shocking well what was shocking about them was that that they were gritty they they the idea of being pre-raphaelite was to actually take art back before the age of raphael before it was sort of idealized and 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 coming straight out of the imagination well they wanted to get it back to back to the real back to reality back to the grittiness of 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 19th century britain which of course was you know industrial dirty grubby so that's how they portrayed um, their subject matter and and that's what was shocking. Now the exhibition draws from the NGV's own collection of pre-Raphaelite art which I understand the NGV has been collecting significantly since the 1880s. Yeah once they became established they yeah they were the new establishment once they kind of broke the barriers and broke down the the, the rigidity of, of the British art world they did become the you know very influential on the next generation of artists so they were they were very much you know they were very popular and, and they remain popular and and yeah the NGV have acquired a major pre-raph work about every five years it's quite extraordinary and we bought our last one in December and and needless to say we're always on the hunt so uh, we, we're still looking but yeah December was the last time we added to the collection. What was that work? That was oh, it was purchased? a wonderful sculpture by a, a medallion sculpture by Thomas Wallner. He's the only sculptor of the Pre-Raphaelite movement, uh, and he actually emigrated. To, he came to Australia during the gold rush in the, in the early 50s, and he created quite a number. He was a dud at, at, on the at, uh, panning for gold, and so he went back to art uh, and made a living. But then he went back to England. So there's some of his work still kicking around in Australia, and we just just acquired one of those. Now, for people who aren't familiar with <coughs> The, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood as a, as a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about uh, artists such as uh, Dante Rossetti, for example, yep. perhaps one of the best known today. Well, in in, in reality, only I mean there were seven of them in the in the group, uh, but really three really kicked on and had major careers, which is William Holman Hunt, uh, John Everett Millay, and uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and uh, and they're the ones who who m- most people focus on and their attention is to those guys because they were the ones who who really were the strongest influence on the next generation and had had long and fantastic careers i mean hunt became the damien hurst of his age he 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 created the a contemporary artwork that attained the highest price in in history uh so you know they became they became uh popular but but hunt also stuck to his guns with his his pre-raph principles one of the things that fascinates me is there's i can see a parallel between the pre-raphaelites and say 
later movements in literature like the beat generation again a small with the beats a small core of three or four or five friends and writers who who then began to influence a generation and in the same way that uh, the these seven core members of the the pre-raphaelite brotherhood then also influenced additional artists further down the line um, and so uh, Morrison Co for example and, and textile movements yep. and so on so we can see the ripples spreading out oh, across the art world ripples is exactly that's that's the perfect way to describe it but what we've got to remember is that these are the first avant-garde artists in Britain in the whole history of British art these are the first true avant-garde group uh, and so yeah because they're, they're, they're passionate guys and that and they're uh, that's why they became so influential because they attracted uh, the next generation of younger artists as, as either pupils or students or straight followers and of course William Morris uh, the great socialist uh, he, he he was there was one of their great disciples and he he took their principles of, of great craftsmanship and and looking at the medieval world of Britain uh, and and that truth to nature which is really the hallmark of the pre-Raph uh, style. He took that well into the 20th century through his um, through his craft designs, and he stuck to those principles. Now, one of the things that intrigues me is uh, looking at an exhibition like this, and I haven't yet had the chance to go in and physically look at some of the objects in it, but you have such a wealth of beautiful work to draw from in order to present an exhibition like this. Well, it's, it's, we haven't actually done a pre-RAF show since 1978, so it's now about 40-odd years since we've done a pre-RAF show, and that's because we, we keep our major paintings. Everyone loves pre-RAF, so they're on permanent display, but what we don't have on permanent display are the, the wealth of works on paper, the pre-raphs were, were, were really... The they really made their mark through book illustration and illustrating the works of contemporary poets, uh, Tennyson and Swinburne and people like that. And and they made their way through, you know, made their made their mark through drawing and book illustrations. We literally have hundreds of book illustrations. And then we go into the arts and crafts movement through Morris. Uh, so we have a lot of furniture, and it's just great for you know, as I said, the first time in forty years that we've been able to holistically show this this really rich vein of art in in from our collection. Medieval modern. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is on at the NGV International in St Kilda Road. It's uh, on now until the 12th of July and free entry, which is great. It's, a, it's an NGV collection show, so uh, it's, it's our collection, so of course it's free. Do you have a favourite work in the exhibition? Uh, today I do. I change my favourite every day every time I walk <laughs> I in the place. That. Wonderful, um, wonderful uh, book illustration, King Sigurd. Uh, stunning, really impactful, powerful, powerful drawing. And look, Laurie, just as a, as a final question mm -hmm. for you, for people who aren't familiar with the, the pre-Raphaelites at all, if they go to see this exhibition, what are you hoping that they take away? What are you hoping that... Are you, do you want people to learn something about the movement? Are you hoping they will just be struck by the, the, the beauty of the work alone? What, what's the takeaway for, for the punter? The, the beauty... The, people know their beautiful works and they're drawn to it, but I've already... It shows only been done in a couple of days, but the feedback I've got already is that people don't know that these guys were the first avant-garde art movement. They, they didn't know that this was radical art at the time, and, and this was the most radical art at the time. So people are learning what these guys did and, and the model that they set, as you said, the beat generation and future avant-garde movements, you can almost point to these seven guys who just said, I'm not I'm not standing for this anymore. Uh, that's so it's it's great for people to to know to to, to comprehend that. Medieval Moderns, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is on it. As I said, NGV International in St Kilda Road until the 12th of July. Entry is free and you can find out more details by going to www.ngv.vic.gov.au. Laurie Benson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Um, my next guests are Lady Sings It Better. They're a four-piece cabaret outfit. Uh, two of them are here with me in the studio, Maeve Marsden and Libby Wood. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having us. So cabaret, how easily does cabaret sit within the Melbourne International Comedy Festival? Are, are a lot of comedians suspicious of cabaret and just claim that you're you're just people who couldn't be funny so you tr- just sing at people instead? <laughs> I'm not sure. This is our first Melbourne Comedy Festival and no one's told us to go home yet. But um, <laughs> We've only I, been here a few days though. So. <laughs> we, we often say at, at normal festivals we tell people we're comedy cabaret to make sure they know that we don't take ourselves too seriously but here we don't have to explain that so that's good <laughs> so uh, it is your first festival where are you from we're from sydney we're from uh inner west sort of area yeah yeah kind of newtown or yeah, yeah. yeah. pretty much yeah. <laughs> cool. good guess yeah uh, i have friends who live in newtown so i'm get, whenever anybody says inner west i'm like a newtown like art and yeah. gonna be around yeah. somewhere yeah what is it about cabaret as an art form that's attracted you to it um I think it's just it, cabaret and comedy and being able to sing and have the opportunity to be funny is... <laughs> it's pretty delightful for pretty, us. Like, it's pretty simple for me. It's just, yeah, um, like singing is my first option for performing and I also enjoy being funny. So yeah. <laughs> hopefully gr- I can be funny sometimes. <laughs> no, Libby's very funny. Um, for me, I really like that cabaret is a way of, of using music and, and storytelling and I also like its kind of history of, of subversion and, and messing around with people's expectations. Um, I'm also not very good at writing songs, so it's a really good way <laughs> to get to sing with a bunch of other people. And, and, and I love singing with, with others like rather than um, performing solo. So having a group and getting to do harmony and all of that is just really joyful. Now, maybe you mentioned subversion, and one of yes. the things that Lady Sings It Better are best known for is subverting other people's songs. So yes. taking songs by the likes of Robin Thicke, Nine Inch Nails, even The Wiggles, yeah. um, <laughs> and showing that ladies sing it better. Yeah, look, um, so, so we sing exclusively songs by men and um, and we often err towards the ridiculous, the misogynist or sometimes just the strange. So we do sing the Wiggles but we mash it up with um, Wiggle by Jason Derulo which is, um, I don't know if you know the tune, you know what to do with that big fat butt, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> so it uh, so works beautifully with children's entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> um, also that notion of subverting what you've just commented on, the, the the misogynist nature of uh, of contemporary pop, hip-hop yeah. kind of R&B songs as well. That's a, a valuable thing to do because often people don't necessarily always notice the, the, the more grossly sexist elements of some of those songs until it's pointed out to them. Mm. And pointing it out through comedy, through satire and through song is a really effective way of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. We think so. I mean, I, I think that people do often get a bit shocked by some songs, like My Sharona. People get really disappointed because they never listen to the words to that. And um, <laughs> go and look up the lyrics. Um, and, and I suppose... There's, there's, there's sometimes that disappointment but we're not trying to sort of tell people that they can't like these songs either I mean the reason we sing them is because there's something musically engaging with them so we try to do that satire but also have a lot of fun and um, and allow people to sit in a room together mocking these terrible terrible lyrics <laughs> often yeah sometimes we sing good songs every now mm. and then Libby there are four, four of you in the group yes. how do you choose the songs is it is it uh, usually one person comes in and says hey let's do this and everybody else says yes or no is it much yeah. more shared than that what's the process it's it's fairly collaborative it'll be like or sometimes like um, Hayden our pianist our, our MD sort of will um, come in and say oh hey I've made you this uh, Brian Adams 
like gospel, gospel arrangement. <laughs> uh, this is for you guys, and we learn it. Or we'll do something like Maeve wanted us to do Stacey's mum, and I always wanted to do a country ballad. And so I was like, well, I'll have that. Thank you. Um, and then, like, Annie came in just with her solo. She just came in and was like, I've made this. And, or there's other we'll times just when chuck we're like, in, yeah. hey, I want to do Pony. And then everybody in rehearsal decides that they're going to put other horse songs in the same song. That's you know, how like, we ended up with a medley about horses. Yeah. We started off just doing Pony by Genuine. And then we're like, hang on a minute. There's Daryl Braithwaite. Daryl Braithwaite. There's some similar chords in Mustang's Alley. So now we perform a medley about horses. So it is really collaborative. And we only ever say no to someone's idea if there's, if there's not enough story in it. Like if there's not enough um, in the lyrics to be funny or interesting, or if musically the song's just so bad that we can't add anything to it, we, we, we haven't yet sung Red Foo. Like you just, there's nothing there musically to work with. We'd have to write a whole new song. Uh, we should be grateful for small mercies. <laughs> um, why did you choose to come down to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival? Oh, well, it's just such a massive and exciting festival. Um, we came down for Melbourne Fringe before, but we really wanted to try out um, the comedy festival and, and also see shows. It's so great to be here and, and be able to run off after the show to see more and get inspired by other performers. What have you seen so far that's been inspiring? Um, I saw Sarah Pascoe and loved her. I saw Tess Waters, who's uh, with mad and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mad and brilliant. Who did you went? Um, I saw uh, Jekyll and James Cactus Blastus um, they're like musical and comedy as well and they were great yeah um, yeah I loved them um, who else do we love I mean it's more what we're now going to go and see because we've only we only opened last night oh we saw Clementine Bastow as oh, well oh yeah yeah she was great. great so yeah Lots of, you've already squeezed a fair bit in, given that you've yeah. only been here in a short space <laughs> yeah, we, of time. We go hard, we run around the artist passes, getting into as much as we can. And fair enough too. Now, Lady Sings It Better, you are performing at the Butterfly Club, yeah. which is just a gorgeous venue. Not only the home of Melbourne's largest collection of kitsch. But, <laughs> so strange it, and amazing. Ha, had you visited the, the place before? Or? I had. I'd come and, and met with Xander a few years ago and we'd been sort of talking about performing there for ages and then finally worked out that the comedy festival they had a slot for us so you knew what the venue was like but yeah. so let me, you, what was your re- response when you walked in i kind of love it i say like we were just in the bar last night and just looking around and there's like a statue on the wall with sunglasses and a saxophone and then there's a <laughs> random like the kitschiest most reject shop looking clock you could ever imagine in the corner and just a million different things in the room i love it it's they like they also oh, put on a cocktail of the week for us lady did. gins it better which is perfect as gin is our tour beverage of choice uh, i was well gin seems to be the topic of conversation on the show today because i was chatting to east end cabaret oh, course, on yes. the show earlier as well and gin is uh, big for them they as also well. like a big they like a gin those girls yeah. yes um now, in terms of the show itself, tell us, audiences obviously listening are going, oh, well, they, they reinterpret songs, they highlight misogyny through music, it all sounds clever and fun, but how do you structure a show so that you've actually got a sustained and focused hour of entertainment rather than it just being a random kind of selection of, of music? Um, look, each time we write a show, we try and, and fit the songs into some kind of, not narrative, but a different kind of theme. So we did a show last year where we... Um, the whole show was based around the fact that we decided to give up feminist cabaret and we were going to try and understand men through their music. So a lot of it's very kind of sarcastic. Um, this one we do base it around the notion of us being messed up children's entertainment with our Wiggles number, but I won't sort of give away where it goes. So we put in lots of kind of 
entirely spontaneous and definitely not scripted banter um, that comes and takes you through the songs and explains why we might have chosen them or or um, or what to listen for in the lyrics. Um, so yeah, it kind of it just it it carries you through about. 10 to 12 songs, um, depending on if you cheer for an encore. And, um, and yeah, look, I, I, we had a great time at our opening last night. The audiences looked happy, so that's <laughs> all we can hope for. That's the main thing. That's what you want. So Happy and terrified on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Sings It Better, uh, performing at the Butterfly Club in Carson Place, just off Little Collins Street in the city there on... Uh, Today, tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday uh, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival um, performing 7pm. 6pm was last night's show. So tonight, Friday night and Saturday at 7pm and then Sunday the final show at 6pm at the Butterfly Club in the city. You can book by going to www.thebutterflyclub.com and you can find out more about Lady Sings It Better including uh, perhaps even a video or two uh, by going to their website, which is www.ladiesingsitbetter.com. Maven Libby, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you. I hope it's a, a fantastic uh, and in very funny comedy festival for you and your audiences. Thank, thank you. you. This time, it's time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. I'll be back next Thursday between 9am and midday, and I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci. Petrucci.